You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. First Samuel chapter 1 this morning. Let me give you a brief introduction. We finished off the book of Ruth last Sunday night. We're making our way through the Old Testament. We now find our way to 1 Samuel, and just so that you know, uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel were originally two, one work. It wasn't just 1st and 2nd Samuel, it was the book of Samuel, and uh, it's now in two books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, but 1st and 2nd Samuel have really three main characters. <clears throat> we have the story of Samuel, this book is named, of course, we have the story of Saul, the first king of Israel, and then we have the story of David. And as you, you finish off 2 Samuel, toward the end of the book, it's the story of his kingdom and his triumphs and his tragedies. And so we have in, in Samuel, the book itself, uh, three powerful men who really shape the history of Israel. And so my thought was that, that my trajectory should be to focus on these three men as we work our way through. Unfortunately, I started reading through 1 Samuel a couple weeks ago, And I was amazed once again to find, as we begin this book, the real hero as we start is a woman named Hannah. It's an amazing story that we'll get in this morning. Uh, Again, I want to reiterate this morning that the Word of God always elevates women. I've been amazed as we've gone through already, we've we've, uh, unpacked the stories of Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca. We've gone on to talk about Samson's mother, of Naomi, of Ruth, today, Hannah, later, Esther, uh, and then Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, and others. Uh, I want you to understand, oftentimes when we come to the Word of God, we have some preconceived ideas that are just wrong. And one of those areas is, is how the Bible treats women. Folks act as if the Bible makes it very hard and difficult that women are sort of to be under the thumb of men. Can I tell you something this morning? That there is nothing further than the truth, that, that, no, further from the truth. Christianity exalts the role of womanhood more than any other faith or religion. The Bible teaches us that women are made in the image of God just like Adam. They are to be cherished, respected, and loved. Uh, They are never to be mistreated, abused, used, or objectified. Christianity elevates the place of women. It always does. And I I think there's some misunderstanding sometimes when we approach those topics. Because of our culture, because of maybe what we've been taught, uh, you will hear from this pulpit and you will hear in lessons about male leadership. And we'll never apologize for that. The Bible is clear that godly men should lead their homes, and their families. But when we say that, what we mean is this, that godly men should give of themselves. They should love their wives. They should cherish the women in their lives. They should respect and honor. They should provide and protect them. They should cherish them as daughters of God. That's what we say when we say male leadership. That's what we mean by that. Men in this church, you ought to respect and love and treat the women in your life and all women right. That's from one woman. She's the only one that's been mistreated, apparently. 
And, and I, I mean that. Listen, it should be Christian men who provide and protect. Fellas, listen to me. You should be the one that holds the door open for a woman. It's not disrespectful. It's respectful. You should give up your seat when you're in a room that's full and there's a woman standing or on the bus. You should still, are you listening, man? You should still get the car door for that woman. I'll be watching right after the service today. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's what we mean. We, we are saying to our men, the onus is on you to lead your wife or to lead women in your life in a godly way. And we should be teaching our children that the Bible commands us to respect and love and cherish women. And we've seen it over and over again as we've gone through the Old Testament. And you'll see it in the New. And, and since I'm on this topic and you've asked, um, l- let, me, let me bring up another hot topic. We, we say, Male leadership, and people get all out of shape about that. Let me give you another word as we talk about women and men that makes people bristle, and that's submission. Mm. Sometimes you hear that in church and people just, especially women, they bristle over the idea of submission. And, And we've been told a bill of lies when we think that submission means I am lower or less than someone. And I'll tell you why that's not true biblically. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, submitted to the will of the Father. Is he less than God? No, he is God, incarnate in the flesh. Jesus Christ came to this planet and he submitted. He gave himself to take upon him the form of a servant, to wrap himself in flesh. He submitted to parents who were not perfect, like all parents. He submitted to a Roman government. He, he submitted to a mock trial. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Listen, submission is never weakness. Never. It's control and strength. And when the Bible says, Wife, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And husband, love your wife as Christ of the church. He is giving us this example of Christ and the church and how we are supposed to portray that. Can I say something to you this morning, and maybe in particular to ladies, but to all of us when it comes to submission? Any immature child can do what they want to do. That's natural. And anyone can say this morning, I am willing to submit as long as you tell me what I want to hear. That's not submission. Submission comes when I am told something that rubs me the wrong way, but the proper authority in my life has said it, and so I'm willing to submit. It is not weakness. It is strength. It is self-control. It is power. And you'll find as we go through the Word of God, the Bible has it right, man. Don't be swept away by our culture. Our culture is screwed up. And when we do things the right way, God honors that. He honors our homes, our families, our churches, and our communities because it's his word and it can be trusted. And so we have the story of Hannah. And uh, we will get to Samuel, we'll get to Saul, and we'll get to David. But this morning I want to look at the life of Hannah. First Samuel chapter 1, starting at verse number 1. Now, there's a certain man of Ramathan Zophim, of Mount Ephraim. Aren't you glad you live in Chatham? I mean, names like that, I just wouldn't want to live in that place. My mom and dad live on a street in Cleveland called Gross Street. 
And I think, I would not live on that street. Now, they try to make it real fancy in French, like grosse or something like that, but it's, it's gross, all right? <laughs> but here's a man from Mount, Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zepham, and Ephraimite. And here we have the introduction to Elkanah. I want you to notice he's a man of social standing. The reason we have all these titles behind him, the son of him and the son of him and the son of him and where he's from, is because he's a man of standing. He was an upstanding member of society. We'll find as we go through this morning, he's a man of wealth. You'll see that he's a very wealthy man. He can support a large family. They take wonderful vacations together. He is wealthy. You're going to find that he's an affectionate man. We'll see in our text this morning that he loves Hannah. And you will find that he's a godly man even in the midst of an ungodly time in the nation of Israel. So here is Elkanah, verse 2. And he had two wives. Problem with that? Who said no? (laughs) You're a dead man. There's a problem with that. I think someone said no. Maybe it's just my mind, those voices. All right? That's all right. That's all right. Was that Ian? Okay. I'm not going to get any names. I'll stop with that. We'll just have some real problems here. That's what the Bible says. He had two wives. It is problematic. Remember this as we read the Scripture. Um, It is descriptive. The Bible gives us an accurate account of what's really happening. Warts and all. And so we go through the Bible and we, we find statements like this. They are descriptive. This is a fact. Is it right? No. But the Bible records it. And when we come to these texts, we must understand it is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It is not normative. This, this is not saying this is the way it's supposed to be. We know that's not the case. This is the evilness of mankind, the hardness of their hearts. We know from Genesis 1 through 3, in the beginning, God didn't make it that way. One man, one woman for life. Okay? So this is descriptive. It's telling us what's happening. happening. It's not prescriptive. It's not normative. Right? This is not a good idea. And you're going to see, and by the way, I challenge you to do this. The Old Testament's full of stories like this. You know that. But I challenge you to look at the life of the families that you find this, and you will find chaos and confusion and heartache. Always. Always. And so we're introduced to Elkanah's two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And I'll just give you a little side note. We're going to move ahead quickly in the story. But those of you who know the story, when I say Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, the high priest, his sons, good or bad? Really bad. Wicked. Perverse men. We'll talk about them next week. They were vile and they were in the priesthood. And why I bring that up is because you're going to see that Elkanah um, loved the Lord, served the Lord, even in the midst of a, of a, of a, of a cult practice, and I say cult in the right way, uh, religious practice, that was not right. 
It didn't matter what they were doing, he was still yearly going to worship the Lord. Listen to me, it doesn't matter what the hypocrite does, it matters what you do. Because all of us will give an account for ourselves before God someday. And so, this is the sacrifice yearly, it's like a festival, it's a big deal. They pack up for it, and the whole family goes along. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And and here is the time for the festival, and, and, and what happened was every year they'd go up, and as they went up, it was like a big celebration Elkanah then would give presents to his one wife, Penina, and all of her children. But when it came to Hannah, he gave her more. And the Bible makes it clear that he loved Hannah. And then it tells us once again that she was barren. And again, in this society, in this culture, this is a big deal. Because for women of that day, uh, to have children meant that the the family would be strong and and healthy and wealthy and we would go on and prolong our days and our name. And and it was an honor to have a a man-child, a a man that would carry on the name. And and so here is a woman now who is barren. The Bible says she cannot have children. The Lord shut up her womb. And just a thought about that. Have you noticed, as we've gone through the Old Testament, how many women were barren? Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Samson's mother, here, Hannah, later on, Elizabeth. It once again shows the miraculous nature of our faith, that God will always bring life where there is no life. And there's something else about this statement when he tells us that that Hannah is barren. We're reminded of God's tendency um, to make our total inability his starting point. This is our God. When we are hopeless, when we are helpless, when we are without resources, without strength, without what we need, when we have nothing, and she has nothing in her culture, society, she's without strength. It's in exactly those times that God says, you are in a good place, and because you have nothing, now I will move on your behalf. This is our God. Because when he does this and we have nothing and he moves, guess who gets all the glory? God does. The Bible makes it clear that when we are without strength, when we are weak, then our God is strong. And we see this in the life of Hannah. Here she has nothing, and God finds in her place there are no barriers to his work. He doesn't need anything, and he moves now in the life of Hannah. So she is barren. Verse number 6, we find out she's bothered. And her adversary also provoked her sore. And this is interesting. Look what happens here. For to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, this is talking about Elkanah going to the feast, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Who is the adversary of Hannah there? Do you know? Penina. If you looked at your bulletin this morning, the name of the message is 
Penina, blow your horn. And, and that's just to say that I'm really bored during the week, and that's the first thing that came to my mind. Dinah, won't you blow your horn, right? But Penina is spouting off here. Hannah's adversary is Penina. And it gets so bad that she just, I mean, she just, the things she says and how she says them are so traumatic to Hannah that she weeps. She doesn't eat. She's sick. Can you guess why perhaps Penina might have this attitude toward Hannah? She's jealous. Right? That's, that's another reason why the two wives is a bad idea. Whoever said that earlier, bad idea. All right? She's jealous. Does she have a right to be jealous? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When the gifts are given, Penina gets gifts. But Hannah gets big gifts. And everybody in the household knows that the favorite is Hannah. What is Penina doing? She is hurting Hannah. Listen to me. Hurt people hurt people. Do you understand that? You look around at people who are caustic and bitter and angry and always bent out of shape. The thing you should ask them is this. Who hurt you? I see people who are frustrated with Christianity. They hate it. And almost every time I talk to them, somebody hurt them. Hurt people hurt people. But now listen, for the believer this morning, that need not be the case. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our great Boaz, our kinsman redeemer, who has intervened, who takes upon himself our hurt, our brokenness, our sorrow, and our grief, he has come within us, he has forgiven us, he has cleansed us, he has changed the meaning of our past. And I don't have to be bitter. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to be bent out of shape. Christian, listen to me. Something is wrong with you if you've been bitter for years. That's not who we are in Christ. And by the Holy Spirit of God, He has saved me, He has transformed me, He has given me life, He has given me a future and a hope. I don't have to be bitter. My past can mean something now. God can use that in my life. Why? So that I can be better and help someone else out. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The trouble we go through that God brings us through, He brings us through that so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort God gave us. Penina has not learned this lesson. She's angry. She's bitter. She's upset. And as they get ready to go year by year to this, this celebration, she just gives the digs. And it cuts Hannah to the core. I, I can only imagine how this might play out. They're all getting ready to go. They're in their big tent, big family, lots of sons and daughters. And I can hear Penina saying, Oh my, it's so difficult with all of these children that I have. I mean, I can hardly keep track of all the kids. I sure hope I packed for all of my children. And Hannah hears it. And maybe one of Penina's sons says, Mom, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Does she like children? And Penina would say, What did you say, sweetheart, a little bit louder? I didn't hear you. Oh, yeah, no, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Would she like to? Yeah, I'm sure she would, but God has not allowed her. And maybe a daughter pipes up and says, Mama, is, is God mad at Hannah? Well, Penina would say, I, I don't know. I, I could never say that God was mad at her, that she was being punished for some sin, but I've been blessed with all of these children. 
and she doesn't have any children, maybe there's sin in her life. Maybe God is not pleased with her. Maybe she's got some trouble that we don't know about. But I'm so thankful for all of my children. Can you hear it? You should. I just said it. All right? Right? And I would imagine, right? I mean, this is grieving to Hannah. It breaks her heart. It breaks her heart. Verse number 8. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Here's a man for you. Right? She's all bent out of shape. And what does he want to do? He wants to fix her. Why are you crying? Why are you upset? Don't worry about it. I, aren't I better? I mean, I give you presents. I buy you flowers. I do all, aren't I better than, than ten sons? This is not what Hannah needs right now. But we as men are stupid. And we just think, this is a problem. I'm going to fix it. It's not going to help her. As a matter of fact, she doesn't answer him. Because the answer is, no, you're not better than ten sons to me. He's trying. And we try. But he's failed here. Okay. Verse number 9, so Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow unto the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. It's interesting to me. Here is Hannah. She is now in the tabernacle, and she is praying. And she's weeping, and she's bemoaning. It's, it's, it's interesting there. That phrase about her weeping is the same phrase that's used when Abraham loses Sarah. That's how grieved she is. It's the same phrase used when, when Esau comes back and he wants a blessing and he doesn't get it and he weeps sorely. It's the same phrase that's used when, when Israel or Jacob learns or he thinks that Joseph, his favorite son, is dead. And here is Hannah pouring out her heart to God. She's weeping. Psalm 6, 8 says this, The Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. You ever been there? There's nothing to say, but you weep. And the Bible says, with our God, he considers this our prayers. I'll never forget the day I was 13 years old. I came home. It must have been a spring kind of day. I think school was still going. My brother and I came home to a house on 120th, West 120th in Cleveland. We met my mom at the door, and she said, Sit down, boys. I have some news for you. And so we sat down, and when you get news like that, you know it can't be good. And she said to my brother and I, she said, "Um, your dad left again. He's not coming home. And that was the second time I'd heard it. I heard it when I was seven years old. And now at 13, I had heard it again. And I know that our culture is different today, but back then, divorce was not as prevalent as it is today. Matter of fact, when I was 13 years old, I was the only kid in my public school classroom who came from a broken home. This was devastating. 
And it, it's still devastating. It doesn't matter what color. It's devastating. Divorce is devastating. And, and we, there's this residual effect from it. But I'll never forget that day, 13 years old. Thinking, here we go again, right? Man of the house, oldest boy, you know, happened at 7, 13. And uh, my mom said, we should pray. I'll never forget, I can still see that, that room and the coffee table in the living room. And, and we gathered around there. And I, and I started to pray as a 13-year-old boy. And nothing came out but sobs and weeping. That was it. No, no words. No words. And this is Hannah. You've been there, haven't you? And here's a great thing. Hannah, this woman, is assured that the God of heaven hears her prayer and is concerned about her broken heart. Do you know something this morning? The God of heaven, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus Christ our Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who holds it all together. Hannah comes and she's assured that as she pours out her heart, she can't even speak. But the God of heaven is concerned about her brokenness. What a God we serve. That when I can't find the words to speak, the God of heaven hears my weeping. Does Jesus care when my heart is grieved, when I said goodbye to the dearest uh, in the world to me? Does he care? Does he know? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched by my grief. We have a high priest this morning who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's just our infirmities the feelings of our infirmities. And he invites his people to pour out their grief because he can handle it. He can handle it. He calls us to do that. This is our God. And this morning, if you're a sinner without Christ, if you call out from your heart, repent and believe, this God will hear you and save you and cleanse you and make you a son or daughter of God. And for his people this morning who are grieving and struggling where the words can't come out, he hears, he knows. His heart is touched by our grief. And so Hannah prays and she just pours it all out. Verse number 12. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And and this is interesting to me. Here's Eli. We'll learn about him next week. He has, he has learned how to indulge his sons. His sons are wicked men. They should not be priests. A matter of fact, because of their wickedness, God will kill them. They are, i, I, I got to check this out, but I think they're maybe the only two men in the Bible where God says of their sin, individually, that their sin was very great. And yet Eli, their father, has indulged them. They're still priests. And now he's sitting in the temple, and he sees Hannah pouring out her heart. You know, her lips are moving. Nothing's happening. And he thinks she's drunk. And so now what he does is he's going to rebuke her. Verse number 14. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away wine from thee. Here's a guy whose own sons will be killed because of their perverseness. And now he's worried about a woman who he thinks might be drunk. I've got to tell you something. This is human nature. How often... 
our own close sins, we ignore and we excuse and act as if it's okay with God. And yet the faults and flaws and sins of others, we magnify and say, how dare you, how could you? You better be careful, Beamer. That two-by-four in your head, right? Everybody sees it and knows it. So before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye, get the two-by-four out of your head, Eli. This is why Calvary is so important, because when I go back to the cross of Calvary, I understand it was my sin. It was nailed to the tree. Christian, you better worry about yourself. Not that we don't make judgment calls, not that we don't discipline people. But too often, the sins closest to us, they're okay. And everyone else's sin is grievous. I can't believe they would do that. And here's Eli in his self-righteousness. Woman, how could you be drinking? What's wrong with you? Put away your wine. And Hannah answers in verse number 15. Oh, no, my Lord. I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid as the daughter of Belial or worthless. Um, For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Oh no, you got it wrong. I'm not drunk. I am grieving. And Eli says, oh, stink. My bad. Sorry about that. Right? Oops, sorry about that. He says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee the petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way. Now watch what happens. And did eat and her countenance was sad no more. Now here is a, he, he is the high priest. He does have a position. He is the high priest that goes before God. And she's crying and weeping. He misunderstands her and he says, listen, okay, whatever you're praying about, God grant it to you. And those words for, from him are enough for her to trust the God of heaven, to leave her grief at the altar, to go back eating and being okay. My friend, can I tell you something? We have something so much better than an Eli in our life. We have the God of heaven who says, cast your care upon me because I care for you. And when we grieve and when we're sorrowful and we don't know the end from the beginning and we don't know how it's going to work out, we can pour out our hearts, and you should. But you should listen to that voice who says, go in peace. You can trust him as a good and faithful creator. And so she does. Verse number 19 And they arose in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ramath. And Elkanah knew knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And now from verses 20 through 28, we find the story of the birth of Samuel. Miraculous. Samuel is born, and she says to her husband, Listen, for the next couple years, I'm not going back to the the tabernacle. I'm going to wean this child in Bible days, usually three years. So she takes care of Samuel. Then she goes back to the tabernacle and says, Hey, Eli, remember I'm the woman that you thought was drunk? I wasn't. You were wrong. You said, God bless you. Here is the child. I am giving him back to you. And she leaves him there. And they worship the Lord. Chapter 2 again, we come to the, the, the prayer of Hannah. I won't read it again this morning. I just want to make a couple statements about that as we bring this morning to a close. I, I want you to notice in, in this prayer, the first thing is this, um, that, that Hannah knew the Lord. 
we have our personal experience here, the I and my and talking about the Lord. She knew him. And there's a sense this morning that, of course, the God of heaven is incomprehensible. He is unsearchable. We cannot find him out. Uh, Listen to me. This God that we serve, we will never know one single thing about him fully. Never. We will never fully comprehend his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his goodness, his patience, his long-suffering. He is infinite. And we are finite. And we, for the rest of our time in eternity, will be learning of this God of heaven. There's a sense that we can never know him, but this morning, understand this, we can know things that are true about him. God has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself, of course, through creation, of course, through providence, but especially through his Son and the Word. And I've been convicted as I went through this story of Hannah and her knowledge of God and her prayer that she prays, how much she knew the Lord. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know him? I'm not just talking about being saved. See, there are some people who, who know about Jesus in their head. There's never been a transfer to their heart where they've repented and believed. That head knowledge will condemn you to hell. Those of us who know him in a personal way that we've repented and received Christ, do you really know him? Could you pray a prayer like this? Could you rattle off the attributes of God? Do we know him? Oh, you can tell us about who's playing in the, in the finals. You can tell us about stats. You can tell us who's being married in Hollywood. But do you know him? Him. How can I say I know him when what I know is so small? The songwriter says, let me rediscover you. Breathe in me your life anew. Reveal to me the God I thought I knew. And let me rediscover you. Maybe leave this place saying, God, let me rediscover you. One of the challenges for me going through the Old Testament is, I thought I knew God. And then seeing him in the Old Testament has opened up a whole new window to see this God. Let me challenge you this week. Know your God. Know your Savior. Don't just know about him. Know him. Take some time this week and find an attribute of God and meditate on it. Ruminate, ruminate, ruminate over it. Ruminate. Ruminate. Ruminate over it. Think about God. Think great thoughts about Him. Know this God. And not only does she know God, but she knows His ways. She knows that this God will hear her cry and this God will set her feet upon a rock. She knows how God acts. She trusts Him. Listen to me. God has proven Himself faithful. Every time He delivers His people and picks us up out of the miry clay and sets our feet upon the rock, right? He's showing, once again, his faithfulness. He's showing how he behaves himself. And it's a prelude to what will eventually happen. He will eventually keep us safe at last. She knows him. And then in closing this morning, let me just say this. We we come to this story, and we're going to talk about Samuel, and we'll talk about the high priest next week. But I want you to notice in this story that our God, as great as he is, never wastes anything. Anything. We go back to the story of Penina quickly this morning. Here was Penina, and her words and her actions were cruel. They were unkind, they were ungodly, they were hurtful, they were painful. And, and, and year by year, she would, she would get on Hannah and say, listen, you have no children, I have children. It was grievous to her. 
And, and this wickedness and, and cruelness, well, we're not condoning, but listen to me. That wickedness from Penina is exactly what drove Hannah to go pray and burden or unload her burden to the Lord. And God used that to give her Samuel, who would protect an entire nation as the prophet of God. This is the beauty of our Lord. Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath thou wilt restrain. And this is our God. Hey, there are Peninas out there. And they're evil and they're cruel and their behavior and their speech and what they do, it is ungodly, hurtful, and wicked. But this is how big our God is. For the believer this morning, in the midst of all of that, God is going to take those things and he always works them out for his glory and our good. He wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. Your heartache, your despair, your fretting, the cruelty of others, the injustice in your life, our God is so big, He wastes none of that. He uses all of it for His good and ultimate, for our good and His glory. This is our God. This is how He operates. And we see this over and over again in the stories throughout the Old Testament. And particularly this morning in the life of Hannah. What an amazing woman. But again, as we close this morning, what an amazing God. Let's have a word of prayer.